Hello and welcome uh, everyone joining the show today. We're going to be talking about investing in the, the uranium space. So if you haven't already done so, we're going to give you some reasons perhaps why you should. And for those who are, we're going to give you some reasons perhaps why you should uh, stock up. Uh, we're joined today by Corey uh, Bellick, he is CEO and Executive Vice President of Kanalaska Uranium, John Bay, CEO and Director of Standard Uranium, and Daniel Major, CEO of Govix Uranium. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Right. We're, well, let, well, let's start with that. There's a lot going on in the space at the moment. It's uh, it's it's very exciting and, and very confusing at the same time. Um, I'll start with you, Corey. Your take on the current situation: Russia, Ukraine, sanctions. It's having a big knock-on effect, um, and in in some cases, people are slightly paralysed uh, with fear as to what they should do next. Um, how do you read it? Well, that, that's that's uh, great, Matthew. Yeah. It. Should they be paralyzed with fear? No, I think it lies an opportunity for uh, for everyone in this space, the uranium space in particular. I mean, um, as as explorers out there looking for deposits, we always look for the signposts where the market's going to turn, where you're going to have a lot more you know um, interest in that space and the future of uranium in in uh, energy production. So you know, I look at things like uh, global macros. You talked about the war in Ukraine. Well, it's it's basically forcing society and forcing governments to reevaluate their clean energy supplies, their baseload energy. And, you know, if you're on fossil fuels, well, there's a drive to have a different uh, dream state out there in time off of fossil fuels. Uranium is a natural, uh, natural piece to that. But now the war is, is forcing that issue perhaps fast forward, if you want to look at it that way. So, you know, I think it's oddly good for our space in, in a very sad way. And, and it's definitely a problem. But you know, and when you think about the fundamentals of uranium, they've really never been better. We're seeing the stock price move for a number of reasons, not just the war. We're seeing long-term contracting coming back into play, which has been one of those key ingredients we've been looking for. And uh, and now we've got funding coming into the space. It's going to allow us to do everything we want to do, particularly in the Athabasca or other jurisdictions around the world where, you know, new mines are going to have to be found and uh, put into production to supply the future needs of uh, of those reactors that are going to generate that clean electricity. So it's, it's never really been a better time to get into the space. So, John, for you, is, well, you're all, well, Daniel, you're a developer and um, you two guys are kind of, you know, late stage ex explorers. Um, it's how... Does this does the current geopolitical environment and this this need this clamor for energy security? We've seen the UK, Daniel, you'll know about this, committing to eight new reactors uh, in the UK. That was a conversation that couldn't be had a year ago. Does it make it a better environment for going and raising capital? Is it cheaper capital? Is it new capital? I mean, what's it done for you, John? Well, I'd say first of all, I echo a lot of the things that Corey was saying. Uh, you know, Russia going into Ukraine has really led to a few things globally, especially for uh, nuclear utilities who are looking to, you know, where are they going to get their nuclear fuel? And we're not just talking uranium, we're talking conversion, enrichment, all these things pull into the, uh, the mix. Now, if I was a nuclear utility in the U.S. and we wanted to secure supply, I'd be thinking twice about, uh, you know, contracting with people over in Russia or Russia-influenced areas. And we'd be thinking more longer term. So for us, you know, being Canadian-focused and North American focused, the situation's great. I think investors are now starting to understand that nuclear has to be a part of the clean energy future and baseload power is, is going to be needed globally. And where are we going to get it from? So look, there are not enough mines in operation. There's not enough discoveries yet. Those things have to happen. So how's it going to happen? Companies like ours, exploration companies searching for those. And to make a discovery, you have to be out there drilling and to drill, you have to raise money. And this is the opportunity for investors to come in now, put their money in, invest, look for opportunities with companies that have 
I've got, you know, check all the right boxes. Are they in the right region? Do they have infrastructure? Do they have the vendors? Do they have the First Nations agreements? Do they have, you know, a technical team that's made a discovery before? Look for those things. Invest. Let them explore. Let them do the work and make those discoveries. Well, before we, before we come over to Daniel, I'm, I want to stick with the, the, the two Athabasca players here, which is, you know, we've, we've seen um, here in Europe, um, the, the German government, who's pretty anti-nuclear, um, sort of rolled back a few of their policies on um, coal. They're saying, well, actually, we were going to phase those out. Now we're not going to phase that. Do you think we're going to see more governments make more real-world decisions? And I'm, I'm looking directly at Canada because, they're, they're, you know, you had Trudeau government talking about phasing out 40% of fossil fuels by 2030. Does recent events or do recent events change that? Well, that is a stick of dynamite you just threw at us to ask us to talk about Trudeau and his leadership and where we're going. I think as, uh, you know, working in the mineral industry in Canada, we're, we're shaking our heads constantly. Um, it doesn't seem that he appears to understand reality compared to uh, saying nice things about the environment. Reality is Canada has got a lot of oil, a lot of, you know, oil sands projects that they could put into production, build pipelines and get into the U.S. But Mr. Trudeau doesn't seem to realize that uh, it's better to have Canadian oil in production than to be having importing oil from Saudi Arabia or U.S. going to Venezuela. So for us and for all the people in the mineral and oil and gas industry, we shake our head and we're completely flabbergasted by the decisions coming out of our government. But for us, all we can do is focus on what we can do when that's go out there and make an exploration discovery on uranium and hopefully get our story in front of those, those same people. And eventually the clean energy story is getting through. We're now starting to see environmentalists actually start to change course on this in Canada as well, where they're saying, wait a minute, uh, coal is bad. We all know that. At least they are starting to understand that. And maybe, maybe nuclear is not so bad. So I'll pass that over to Corey for some comments. Yeah, uh, echoing with John, but you know, um, you know, one of the things that we saw just in the last week here is that in the budget for the Canadian government are support mechanisms or tax credits, and one of the minerals in there is uranium. So as you explore for uranium, you'll receive tax credits, which allow you to make every drill hole a little bit longer, if you want to look at it that way. It gives you more opportunity for discovery for our investors to make their money go further. So that's just brand new in the last few days. And, um, you know, that's, that's really important. You're also seeing the provinces uh, perhaps disagreeing with the federal government going, we're going to get together and we're going to look at SMRs, small modular reactors, as an option for small, small um, communities, let's call it that, like Saskatchewan, where I have a million people, a big reactor doesn't make sense. So you're seeing the provinces say, okay, federal government, fine. Okay, Mr. Trudeau, fine. We're going to band together and look at this from a provincial level. And I think that's going to be worldwide in many ways. And it's certainly happening here in Canada. So there's a lot of different flavor in there. And, and it's, uh, it's an interesting time we live in. Hey, so da Daniel, Canada's ranked number one on the Fraser Institute as a jurisdiction to do business. Um, given we're going to need all the uranium we can produce, is Nijia going to make the list soon? <laughs> well, number one on the Fraser Institute. <laughs> I don't think we'll quite get to that. But look, you know, I you and I have had this conversation before. I mean, how people assess risk, you know, I, I, I jokingly say just because you can't buy a Starbucks does not make a place risky. You know, you look at Niger as a classic example, you know, producing uranium since 1971, never missed a beat. You know, I can get a mine permit done in four months. Um, you know, you've got a government mining code that has not changed since 2006, other than just tidying it up. You've got an FDI-driven fo focused investment strategy there. You've got a government who relies on uranium production and is pushing, like the most of Africa, their GDP is commodity-driven. 
So if you want to be in mining, you know, it's got the highest GDP growth in the world, Africa has at the moment, just by the nature of how much it can grow. It's got the commodities for the majority of the green environment, whether you want copper, uranium, rare earths, Africa's full of them um, and needs to grow. And the government owns the land. So when you go in for your environmental permit or your, you're dealing directly with a government. You know, we got our environmental permit done as well in under four months. The approach was they had a town hall meeting for a week. Everybody who had a problem turned up in that room for a week and for one, five days solid, they discussed it. And at the end, they signed it, done and dusted. You know, we're talking completely the opposite. And that's where I see political risk, which is it, it's not whether you think the government overall is a security risk. That's not political risk. Political risk is if I drill all of this stuff, have I got a chance of even getting this thing permitted? Is some change in the law for the local people suddenly going to have a massive impact on how I can get my project permitted, make it tougher? These are all costs as well that are coming through. So, you know, what we're finding as well, I mean, diversity for supply was already a discussion third quarter last year, you know, it, it had already become a problem where it was clear getting all of your material from Kazatomprom and Cameco was not a good strategy, particularly as Cameco are already indicating that Cigar Lake has got to shut down anyway at the end of the decade. And it's, and Kazatomprom were highlighting their problem, which is at the end of the decade, they start phasing off far. So it's like, where's the stuff? And that's accelerated a lot. You know, there are a lot of the big utilities that we're talking to and getting those off, you know, we're having those teasing discussions at the moment is, you know, we need to support these new projects that are out there, these new development projects. And Africa, you don't have these these geopolitical risks. You know, we're, we're happy to support whether it's Niger, whether it's Namibia, you know, the the, the utilities want diversity of supply. They, they they do, and I think there's a there's a big kind of conversation that that's happening globally now around energy security and where, where critical minerals or national security, however you want to kind of frame this, um, because the average um, household is experiencing extraordinary energy increases. I cost in, 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 you know for it be heating your house or driving your yeah. car. It's not a, it's not a good time, and politicians are, are perhaps for the first time, feel they've got permission to change the narrative and, and adapt. And I think that's fantastic. But Corey, what, what, is, what do you think this situation does for relations? Because, you know, the geo, geopolitics and, and I think, you know, Daniel's talked about this previously where he said, look, it, it's just a case of the, the, this, the molecules will just find a different route into market. But you guys, Canada, are, 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 you know, are looking down south into the US and saying, well, if you do sanction Russian uh, uranium uh, and all associated derivatives um, thereof. That's good news for you guys. That's really good news for you guys. But how, how do you benefit from it today as a junior uh, equities company? How do we benefit from it, uh, Matthew? Um, you know, for us in our game, it's we're, it's the spot price. It's a long-term contracting price. And anything that drives that will undoubtedly drive interest into 
into what we do in the junior space. And that allows us to finance our programs. It allows John and, our, and myself to go out and have our teams do what they're good at doing. And that's making discoveries. Uh, we happen to be, you know, geared towards the Athabasca. We believe that's, you know, one of the jurisdictions uh, on the planet that's obviously tier one and displaces others uh, around the planet, taking aside the, the diversification that utilities may want. But anything that drives that, um, that price up allows us to finance, go out and make discoveries, because the only way we do is by drilling holes. And we haven't been able to do that for 10 years. Now we can. And just in the last six months, it's really turned for us. And um, I would say we're going out there and doing the work that uh, that's going to amount to those discoveries that will feed into the security of supply for utilities down the road um, out of out of Canada, out of the Athabasca. So it's. Uh, but it's what, what happens if sanctions don't happen? How does that affect your business? Yeah, honestly, sanctions uh, not happening probably doesn't change much because you still have a dream state that the planet has 10, 20, 30 years down the road um, to get off of fossil fuels. And one of the ways that's going to happen is nuclear. And uh, it's going to be good for Daniel. It's going to be good for John, good for Canalaska and myself. Um, That's the end game. That's just a reality. Yeah, I'm going to add on top of that too. Even if sanctions don't come in by the U.S. government, those utilities still have to be thinking longer term about the supply from that part of the region. Even if sanctions don't come in, they've still got to be thinking, man, are we doing the right thing by getting our supply from Russia or Russia-controlled areas? And I think the answer is clearly no. They need to be thinking, we need to be moving immediately to start diversifying and moving faster to get enrichment and conversion. And it's in safe jurisdictions, so not just uranium, but the the nuclear fuel at different levels needs to be uh, produced locally or at least uh, in the hands of, of friendly partners. No, I, 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 I agree with that. Those sanctions are effectively happening anyway by by implication. I mean, if you can't ship material out of St. Petersburg because the ships won't go in and you can't get in. Insurance for containers out of St. Petersburg has gone from $2,000 a container to over $200,000 a container. You don't ship out of St. Petersburg unless you really have to. You know, you're, you're in a situation here where material just can't move. I mean, we've been trying to for our final feasibility study of doing uh, logistics, re- really updating our logistics review to get pricing to get out in Niger to Convidai and Comorex and, and Cameco. And getting the shipping guys to focus has been really hard because they're spending the whole time trying to figure out how to get stuff out of Kazakhstan, out into the big wide world, not via St. Petersburg. Um, and so by implication, it has slowed down the amount of material that's moving into that market. The other problem you've got is that, and you've seen the announcement, particularly a lot of the European utilities, they've already sanctioned out Russian material. It's not happening. And so they're nicking the space for everybody else on the enrichment side already. So the enrichers are now struggling because they're kind of like, well, that guy at Vattenfall wants material. How do I get the the primary product to put that in the pipeline. Oh, by the way, there's some guy called Sprout who keeps nicking the front end of this as well while I'm trying to get it. So you've got a massive squeeze in the middle, uh, you know, and that that's where it's really getting killing at the moment and, and is what's driving the price. So I think what you're also seeing here as well, you know, we've talked about inventory pull down. That's just accelerating at the moment because the utilities have got to take it from somewhere because they can't get it from the normal grocery shop. And they're like, well, I got to just draw down on what I've got. Got to keep going for it. So, yeah, it's going to get really tight. I, I think my biggest concern on this whole thing is the enrichment side. It's, you know, what happens if you sanction out Russian enrichment, 
how do you replace it? The only way you can part replace it is overfeeding, massive overfeeding, which is great for all of us in this room because, you know, it, that is a considerable under utilization of the material that they're feeding uh massive inefficiency uh, explain short, for um, new people what that means right. explain for people need what, what, what right so basically yeah. when you send uh, you, you sign a contract uh, i'll give you an example you, you agree a level of tailings so you're going to suck all of the u235 out of the product that got delivered down to a certain grade um and when you and everything that's left over the the enricher keeps and you get it converted into a fuel product that you can go away and i think dave cates always does a really good example which i think is best you know there's for those of you who have one of those orange squeezers at home where you put it on and you pull the handle down and you squeeze the orange juice out so if, imagine that is the enrichment capacity well normally you'd kind of put, give it a good pull you get about a half a glass you give it a second squeeze and you get the, that's the old days what hurt us in the past was the underfeeding, where the guy would really lean on it, and he's like pulling the hell out of this thing to get every drop. Now, the guy's like, bang, one pull, chuck that orange away, second one in. And so you're not getting as much material out of every orange or every bit of uranium that we deliver, which means we as an industry actually have to mine more uranium to meet the requirement of the reactors. And, and that is starting to feed in and will increase um, to try and cover that position that's out there then you've got the problem that you've got convidine standing at the moment and won't be up for production until next year so you've got to find us6 from somewhere i mean th thanks for that um quite easy to understand uh, analogy daniel i think that makes it easy for people who are perhaps new to this and what we're trying to do now is just lay out all of the factors which affect um, uranium's chance of success. So we're, we're looking at the geopolitical component here, which does have a knock-on effect with su the supply chain in terms of you know how um, it, it operates. But Corey, we mentioned there one of the other factors which is affecting um, spot price. Spot price up to sixty-three and a half bucks. I, I mean, uh, you couldn't have put money on that last year, I, I, I suspect, or well, you wouldn't have put money on it last year. Um, spot price. Do you think that's been driven by the, entirely by the geopolitics, or does that thing we mentioned a few seconds ago sprout and, and spurt the physical uranium trust? Is that the big momentum play here? What's your what's your call on that? In, in, in which case, can you can you what's having the most effect out of those two things? Yeah, you know, I I I don't think you can pick which one is the most because they're cumulative and they layer on each other, and I think. You know, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's, um, you know, just just physical lack of supply to fill that demand, or you've got utilities that are now very low on inventories going, we've got to secure the next 10 years. Where, where is it going to come from? We need to find a MacArthur River equivalent every year just to keep up or start to replenish those utilities. I mean, they're short 1.4, 1.5 billion pounds of uranium over what they had, say, five or six years ago. That's a big issue. Layered on that, Matthew, is something that when you look a little longer term, that's the near term stuff. But if you look longer term, imagine where you lose 20% of global production as it sits today out of the eastern Athabasca Basin. Cigar Lake, if they continue producing, is done in six or seven years. They don't have a phase two reserve. MacArthur River, it's restarting right now. Just do the math. It's going to be 15 years and they're out of war. There are no tier one 
deposits like Cigar MacArthur, put Arrow on the other side of the basin, for instance, that will fill that 20% in eastern Athabasca, those three milling operations of Arano and Cameco. Imagine that 15 years out, you don't have production from the eastern Athabasca from the traditional sense. That's a big deal. And I think investors are just starting to warm up to that and understand it, that there's a severe shortfall coming without investment in discovery. And that's where we're positioned very well as juniors in the Athabasca or even other parts of the world to help fill that void that's real and it's coming. And it's just starting to come into the sites of investors now and, and the utilities and others that that's not going to be there in 15 years. It's critical. I'm going to hop in on this too, uh, Matt. And one thing I wanted to add to that is we've got a lot of new investors coming into the space that maybe haven't invested in uranium before and don't really understand the full process of what it takes to actually make a discovery. Now, Corey and I are in the Athabasca Basin, uh, we're just we're, we're exploring right now. Standard, we have five projects. And as Corey mentioned, you know, NextGen's Aero project is probably the next big project to come into production. Uh, they're going through construction right now. They're probably five, six years away by the time that uh, Cigar Lake is probably finished. And we're sitting right beside them in the southwest corner. So for us, we're exploring. We're doing drill programs, but investors need to understand you don't make a discovery with every program. It's a scientific act. You're following the clues, you're working it, and you have to keep drilling and drilling and doing follow-up programs to make that discovery and then delineate it and see how big it is before you're ready to be that next error to be taken out and get into production. So it's a long cycle. Investors need to understand that. You get your real torque from investing with juniors right now before they make that discovery. So I encourage investors to look at companies who are drilling, who are doing the exploration work, whose share price maybe hasn't taken off yet, but what an opportunity now to find these companies, find good management, teams who've got technical experience in making discoveries and really look for opportunities. And that's what I think both Can Alaska and Standard have in the Athabasca Basin. I know Daniel's got a great project in Africa as well, so I'll let him speak that's, his opportunity. I'm just feeding out what you're saying there, John. I mean, that, that that's the easy part. Now you found it, now you've got to make it work. I mean, and you've only just started spending money when you get to that stage. I mean, you, you find a deposit, then you got to infill drill it. So every after that, every single hole you drill doesn't add any pounds. It's just making those pounds more secure than they were before. And you're just spending money filling in holes. And then you start the engineering studies. And then you go through the various stages of PEA. And even then, you've got to go and get the environmental permit, which, as we said earlier, a lot easier if you're in Africa than you are in Canada and a lot quicker. And while you're holding that environmental permit, you are still spending GNA all the time hoping you get to the end of that pipeline that you can then finance it. And, and I think that's one of the biggest issues that's out there. And even if we find things, they still got to get to the end of the pipeline. And that is the biggest risk that the, and that's where the utilities are starting to realize they've got to come in and start supporting these juniors like ourselves to get us across the line. And that's one of the things you're starting to see in the mentality on the term contract. You know, the biggest single benefit of Sprott, in my opinion, was, wasn't this continual trend. It was the thing they did at the very beginning. They moved $30 uranium into $40 uranium. Nobody could contract at $30 uranium. Now, as soon as they moved it up to $40 uranium, the, you t the producers are willing to go in and negotiate at that price. And that's been the thing that's been pulling it up. And then what we saw last year, RFP started coming out to developers. And they started trying to understand who's who in the zoo, who can deliver what, when, and at what cost. And that's really now what you're starting to see feed through. Some of the early stuff has gone. There were a few producers trying to really fight for, for market share rather than anything else. That's filtered away as well. 
and you're now looking for the new production to get contract, which is why you're seeing the contract price of at 50 bucks. At the same time, that spot price, you know, if you're a utility and you want to go out and contract, it's a lot easier to go into your CFO and say, I want to cut a contract at $50, $55, when the spot price is at $63. You know, a completely different conversation that's going on. So for me, that's really has been the, the step change coming through. And then, you know, coming back to the, your question earlier, is it geopolitics? Is it it's both? You know, the reality is geopolitics has radically changed how everything is moving around the material. You've got supply constraint. The other thing that's changed, energy costs more, you know, and we saw this when the gas price went up a year ago. Gas price spiked as well. Uranium price went up with it. Why? Because the utilities can pay more because they're getting a better utility price at the gate, at the customer. So all right, I can afford to pay more for my uranium because I'm actually selling them my customers power at a higher price in a competitive market. And that changes the fundamental as well. The thing, the thing I've um, realized after sort of three years of covering um, uranium, and, and it's only been recent, so, is that not all developers will get into production, right? And I think the the um, utilities recognize this. I think some of the industry people that I've been speaking to recognize this. And that's got to be a good thing for the guys who have good, strong fundamentals to their story and feel that they will. It's good news for you two explorers because you suddenly become more valuable as it's recognized that some of these developers won't get any production. So it, it, again, you, you've got to think about how do I take advantage of that, Corey? Yeah, how do I take advantage of that? It's about having having the right access to land, people, and having the ability to explore. That's the market, the fun, the the, the funding that we need to go out and do what we do. That's the key for us. We we've spent a lot of time in the last 10, 15 years getting that land in position. We've added to it recently. We're focused in the eastern Athabasca, where I articulated there's a problem coming. So we see a need by our partner, Cameco, at, at our West MacArthur project, but also nearby the Cigar Lake Mine on one of our other projects we're exploring. So being in that right real estate at the right time with the right people that have done it before and can do it again is critical. And we've positioned ourselves very strategically in the last uh, decade, but really in the last six to 12 months to execute now in a good market where we've got support for what we're trying to do, where we've got the ability to make a discovery that makes a difference. And, um, and I think now we've got the tools to do that in place and we're ready to go. So it's a fun time. John, same story, I guess. Yeah, and for us, I mean, look, when you look at companies, there, as you say, there are a lot of companies out there who will not get production. There are some that don't want to get the production. They want to get themselves flogged off to somebody else as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, you got to look at the guy who is willing to hold the baby at the very end, because if you're not doing the studies right, you're not going to do the get it right. You may be the guy who has to build it, and and our strategy has always been to assume we are going to be the developer, unless somebody offers us the egregious check that we just can't refuse. But you know, it, and that's part of where we've been as a company all along. I mean, we were a consolidator back in 2016. Why? Because we felt we needed to have a pipeline of projects in it for, for risk perspective as well, but also we knew at some point one of our projects will get built and we better have another one in the pipeline because we're now a producer 
And once you become a producer, you better, your only way you can have growth is by having another project to add to what you're doing. So, you know, you're setting yourself up to that long term. We've got a lot of exploration upside. So there's Brownfields expansions possible as well. But, you know, again, look at management, look at companies that are doing it right. It, treat each PEA, we treat each document we do as though we've got to better it on the next one. You know, you you don't kind of just tart it up and make it look attractive just for the hell of it for the market. That's an engineering document. I'm going to might have to build that thing. So you want to see management to actually understand that and know what they're going to have to go and build and not leaving things out just because it makes their numbers better. If Daniel is the uh, the company that's holding the baby at the end of the situation, I think Corey and I, we're the ones that are in the front end making the baby. So we're the <laughs> ones who are out there. Uh, not, <laughs> how you want to look at that? Yeah, <laughs> not together, <laughs> but uh, separately. <laughs> that's making the cut. <laughs> yeah. So here we are. Uh, so, so standard, you know, we've got five great projects. And we've got uh, an exploration team that's made discoveries before. And we're in the region where, as Corey said, we're a tier one project. If, discuss, if discoveries get made, those are going to get moved along. And uh, our investors need to know that, look, those are great opportunities to come see what these guys are doing. Look at the uh, look at the reports they're putting out of, these, of the drill programs they're doing. Are they getting closer and closer to that discovery? And we're happy to say that we are. Every drill program, program we do, the uh, results are getting better and better. Our GOs are getting the data they need to help move the project forward. And we're exciting to be going back into our, our Davidson River project for our fourth program starting in a few weeks. So something for our investors to get excited about as we just wrapped up our, our inaugural drill program at our, at our Sundog program. And Matthew, you, you'll know in, in the old commodity value curve, there are two points that actually go exponential. One of those is the explorers. The other one is the other end when the developers build, you know, and, and we always have a chart that just shows the valuation difference between the developers and the producers. And you more than double at that point as well. Um, I mean, yes, you're taking on capital risk while you're doing it, but those are the two parts of that valuation curve that go exponential. And you've got both of them sitting at this desk. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to get you guys on for because you know that we're talking about the Lausanne curve for people who don't um, understand it. Go look it up. Uh, it's very, very obvious. You've got two guys at the beginning of one of the hockey stick moments and you've got Daniel sitting at the other post-feasibility and, and development stage. So that's quite exciting. I mean, just, I mean, Corey, you, you, you know you've probably timed this right. You were sitting around for, your company was sitting around for a long time waiting. I think everyone in the uranium space has been waiting since 2011 for, for this movement. But do you think that this cycle lasts longer than previous cycles, i.e. you've got more time to get it right? I, I do believe that, Matthew. We've talked about this before, that this cycle feels different than the last cycle, which was relatively short-lived. And I really lean on the fact that over that 10-year, 12-year low period, reserves continued to come down from the current producers and they were not replenished through new discoveries or projects that are put into production. Um, there's projects ready to come into production like, like GoVX, absolutely, but there wasn't anything new replacing that in terms of discovery. And if you think about the Athabasca Basin, I tried to articulate it, 15 years from now, it could look radically different from a production perspective. And reality is, if, if Canalaska made a discovery today, it would be 15 years to production. And that's a, probably a fast track in the Athabasca Basin. That's real. Daniel is sitting on a different, or Goviex is sitting on a different end member where they can move it a little faster. Um, so two very different jurisdictions, but they all come to play together in what is required to feed and fill that demand that, that is coming literally like a tidal wave in front of us. And um, 
you know, that's, uh, that's the fundamental difference this time. You've, you've not had the discoveries to support the increasing requirements that are out there. And that's, that's, that's a big deal. Well, it's in- increasing for sure. We, you know, like mentioned earlier, the UK government stepping up their their ambitions. We all, we saw four hundred billion bucks worth of an infrastructure investment from the Chinese government for forty five new reactors and uh, lots of SMR talk at, at the moment. So you know, the demand is there, and it's a, it's a very different narrative. You know, we're seeing environmentalists also getting aboard this kind of green fuel, being nuclear and, and gas as well in the in the in the, in the uh, taxonomy here in Europe anyway. Um, John, I mean, just 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 for you, um, what, what what would you say to new investors looking at the uranium space? What what do they need to know? What 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 should they be looking at to make better investments than perhaps just you know the pub talk, which seems to be proliferating around uh, social media? Well, great, good good question, man. I think we're starting to see brand new investors come into the space because they're hearing about nuclear energy. They're hearing about uranium as a hot sector to get into. And I truly believe uranium is going to be one of the hottest sector for the next few years. So when investors look at companies for the first time, they got to figure out, you know, what are they looking for? Are they looking for a real safe investment of a company that's maybe already in production, somebody like a chemical, which is going to be a nice steady return on their investment? Or are they looking for something with a bit more of a mix, a bit more of a high torque opportunity, a big discovery by a junior? And if that's what they're looking for as part of their mix, they need to be looking at different regions around the world. Maybe they want something in Africa, something in Australia, maybe they want something in Canada or something in the US and looking at uh, the opportunities. Now, if you're going to pick different regions, if you're looking at, say you pick Canada as, as one of your regions, now you look at the Athabasca Basin because that's the primary region in Canada where actually discoveries are made. High, high grade discoveries are being made there. There's other regions in Canada. We're seeing new companies pop up in Ontario, in Newfoundland, up in the far north as well. But Saskatchewan's Athabasca Basin is the premier spot globally for high grade discoveries. Now, if if you're looking for a company to make a discovery, what do you look for next? You look for companies who've got management that have actually been in the capital markets. They know how the capital markets work. You want to have technical teams that have made discoveries. People who've seen the, the life cycle from the start of a discovery to work it all the way through. Our companies both have that. What else do you want to have? Companies who've got great relationships with the First Nations partners. If you don't have that, forget it. Don't even bother looking at these companies. Number three, you need to have government relationships and be able to get your permits on time. And then you have to have investors that believe in your story, who are supporting you, who are helping you fundraise and get those capital raises done. All those things come together. And I think, uh, you know, Corey and I in Saskatchewan have got those things going for our two companies. And there's a few others that I would encourage investors to look at. And once again, you know, you might want to diversify. You might not want to put all your eggs in one basket of one company. So have a look around, see where you can uh, spread your money out and look for multiple opportunities. Well, look, look to Africa as part of the portfolio, wouldn't you say, Daniel? Do you want to be the African uh, spokesperson? <laughs> of course. Uh, you know, I mean, look, you, you, again, as we said, uh, you, you get the talk at different points um, and the developers are the other part of it. You know, who does fill those gap, that gap that's out there? Because that gap is coming fast. I mean, and, and it's, if you looked at anyone, whether it's UXC, whether it's, you know, WNA, it's 2030. It's 2030 onwards, the gap opens up and no matter what projects you put into it, you don't fill up the gap. So these gentlemen here have got a long way to go. It's the companies as well who can talk into that now. You know, we're looking at 2025 for the first project, assuming we can get all the financing, 2027, the second project fitting into this pipeline as it comes through so that we're in there going forward. So there's plenty of spaces to look. There are some really good teams out there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, what is different this time is we actually have a growing nuclear industry in the last cycle. 
it was not. It was actually getting pretty stable um, and really was no real big growth out of it. We had a lot of supply coming on because of Kazakhstan. You had the restart of Cigar Lake coming back on as well. But what you were missing was that real demand growth. And, and you know, the one thing that I'm excited, particularly in the UK, not just the fact that they're building reactors, is they've changed the financing model for it. And that radically changes the economics of nuclear as well. And that is the key of what will be successful in our region. Well, the, the, well, the cost, of, cost of energy is already cheap. But look, gentlemen, I, I want to just wrap it up there and say, look, for those, thank you for your time. They've got three good companies with three good management teams here, folks. If you haven't got uranium in your portfolio, you should. Um, the, the market's moving. I think sentiment is moving and everything seems to be uh, heading the right direction. So gentlemen, I thank you for your time. We'll see you soon, I'm sure, individually and on more of these panels. But it's a super session. Thank you. Well, thank you, Matthew. Real pleasure. pleasure. Take care, everyone. Good to see you.